1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Higher Side Chatters, doing what we do from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood. And we have no shortage of disturbing data about the dark and unfortunate reality that much of this world is run by psychopaths, eugenicists, and billionaires who simply think there are too many of us, and that reducing those numbers is a worthwhile investment. Privileged elite that consider the general public to be expendable, in need of their management, and subject to whatever practices and protocols they deem necessary. And while most people have no problem looking back through other periods of history and recognizing this reality, whether it be tyrannical kings and dictators, Nazi scientists, or slave traders, somehow the majority have convinced themselves of the convenient delusion that such mindsets and circles of power are all in the past. Unfortunately, with very little accountability for previous atrocities and a lot of the same families, organizations, and corporations still running the big machine, there is little to no evidence of some new altruistic elite. And sadly, today's guest Vera Sherov knows this all too well. During World War II, when she was only a child, her family was taken from their home in Romania and put into a concentration camp. Her father died not long after, and it was several years before she could be reunited with her mother, who immigrated to New York City. And after getting her education, marrying, and having children of her own, Vera became a human rights activist focused on the dark side of medicine when her teenage son died from a side effect of a new antipsychotic medication that her family wasn't properly warned about. Today, she is the founder and president of the Alliance for Human Research Protection and has done some amazing things over the years when it comes to exposing crimes against humanity by the biomedical industry, unethical testing of drugs on vulnerable populations, and breaches of the Nuremberg Code, and we are lucky to have her. A passionate advocate for humanity, a voice for the voiceless, and an exposer of state-sponsored medical experimentation and scandal, Vera, welcome to the higher side. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, this is a real honor. You are a great example of just how impactful one person can be when they are motivated and dedicated. And I am just in awe of some of the things that you have helped expose. I know the biggest issue of our times is the COVID operation and the coerced global vaccination campaign. But there are so many lesser known scandals that paved the way for how we got into this sort of situation. And I hope we can start with some of those sorts of things and to take it back to the beginning, I've heard you say that you see your experiences being taken from your home as a child and being thrust into a camp and the things we've experienced the past few years as part of a continuum. Is that right? Unfortunately, yes. It's been said, you know, that Germany lost World War II, but the Nazis didn't. Mm. And that's a very, very correct assessment because Although there were some of the perpetrators who were tried at Nuremberg trials after the war, most were not tried. Most were never held accountable, and they proceeded to continue to do the kind of work that they had been doing before. Some 1,600 Nazi scientists were brought to the United States under paperclip, it was called. 
And you see, the culture that made the Holocaust possible was imported to the United States. And they were brought here to actually train and teach American scientists and doctors Hmm. some of the techniques that they used. They did it at Fort Detrick and other military centers. They did it in hospitals, in mental hospitals, in prisons. So it grew rather than disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Hard to believe, but it is true. And that is something we've discussed before, paperclip and just how little accountability there really was, not only with the scientists and doctors that we absorbed into our system, but also a lot of the same companies are still around. Wartime chemical companies become fertilizer and pesticide and even drug companies like nothing ever happened. And the more you dig, the more you start wondering, so what part of this apparatus did get dismantled? Seems like very little. A lot of the people are still out there, the next generation carrying the torch in a lot of ways, and these companies have repeated scandals and repeated fines for deceptive marketing and all kinds of stuff, but they just keep on trucking. And for some reason, they still have the public's trust. It's really hard to understand how that trust hasn't completely eroded at this point. Well, part of it is because they really have such huge stakes. And what happened, for example, in 1980, the Bayh-Dole Law eliminated the barriers between academia and science and industry. And so what happened ever since then, what grew into a huge business are public-private partnerships. Now, what does that mean? Public-private partnerships. What it wound up doing is corrupting both the science and the academic distancing from the corrupting financial ties to industry. So what you have now is both the universities and government agencies are in partnership, in business partnerships, with the very industries that they're supposed to oversee on behalf of the public. So you have officials of the CDC, of NIH, having patents together with pharmaceutical companies. And so they have a financial stake in promoting and increasing the use of these products of drugs and vaccines. That's why you have such an explosion of use and an explosion of children being exposed to by now 72 vaccines before they're 18. Mm-hmm. It's unheard of. It's totally unjustified. Right. And there's also a special category for vaccines that kind of shields them from liability. Uh, there's the old Protection Act. And then uh, obviously COVID vaccines or jabs have their own special category. But that kind of incentivizes big pharma to make vaccines or make 
medications, let's say, deliverable by shot rather than pill because they have special liability protection set up for that delivery mechanism. And that's probably another big contributor to this crazy explosion in, in shots that were given to kids. Well, yes, what happened in 1986, because there were so many, there was an avalanche of lawsuits because children were harmed. So instead of forcing the companies to only market vaccines that were proven scientifically to be safe and effective, they gave them a pass. They took away the incentive for companies to actually make sure that the vaccines that little babies and children were being exposed to were safe. They had no reason to even do the proper testing anymore because they were immune from liability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that alone should be enough to make people skeptical liability protection, but for some reason it doesn't. Even though there are more and more shots for kids all the time, another strategic reason I think they try to get these into kids so young is that there isn't a long track record of kids being healthy humans. So when something goes wrong, they can say, oh, well, your allergies are genetic, or this kid died of SIDS randomly and totally unrelated, or it just seems like they had autism and we didn't know until speaking age. They can hide behind a general lack of development, but with the COVID jabs, it's like, hey, wait a second, I've been healthy for 30 years. Now I have a heart problem all of a sudden? Giving these shots later in life, I think, is opening up some eyes and making more people question the childhood vaccination schedule, but it seems to me that they put a lot of strategy into this stuff. Well, it's pretty dark, actually. Also, it's a business model. You see, the reason they are so anxious to get the children vaccinated is because then they want to get those injections on the children's schedule, mm -hmm. on the children's vaccination schedule. That gives them immunity even when it's no longer an emergency. Right now, they only have immunity because it's a state of emergency, and these aren't licensed. Let's just remember, these shots are not licensed by the FDA. They only have usage under emergency. Right. That's all. And since there really is no emergency anymore, we don't have an emergency, a pandemic. They want to use the children as a way to get that continuous immunity under the childhood schedule. Mm. We really, really have to think deeply about this. What kind of a society have we become? that we are actually sacrificing the health of our children to promote a business model, to put them, to subject them to risks of harm. And that's piling up. The more children that are being exposed to these injections, the more children are harmed. When did you ever have eight-year-old children, 12-year-old children getting heart attacks? Right. That is not normal. That is not from nature. I agree. I agree. And so many people are still in denial, even though there's a wide range of things that are happening now. And just before we got started, you were saying that 
you've looked at some parallels between COVID and the Spanish flu situation. And this is a situation that a lot of people are looking back to as justification for, well, we did it then. So, you know, a lot of these things we're doing now. But what did you find? What do you find interesting about the parallels between those two situations? This really opens up a can of worms. So number one, it was not Spain from which this emanated. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It was not influenza. It was not a flu. An estimated 50 million people died. But the cause was an experimental meningitis vaccine produced by the Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research, which today is Rockefeller University. The first ones to be injected were the new military recruits. This was just as the United States was about to enter World War I. Some six million troops were vaccinated. Hmm. And they then proceeded, you know, in overcrowded boats to be shipped abroad, where they infected millions of others. In the United States, there was an aggressive campaign to vaccinate the civilians. Now, for many years, this has been held up as, oh my God, this could be another Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. No. It was conceded by studies which have been, you know, quite a few studies have been done. But this particular study was co-authored by Anthony Fauci, acknowledging that 97% of the deaths were from bacterial meningitis. Hmm. Okay? It had nothing to do with the flu. It was just blamed. So, now, yes, during the Spanish flu, they also used masks, had big campaigns about masks, and they had lockdowns, no schools, no houses of worship, everything closed. And guess what? In 1918, there was a study done with hospital staff comparing those who wore masks and those who didn't. And what do you think it showed? The masks made no difference in transmitting. You know, the, it was bacterial meningitis. Mm -hmm. And so that study was buried when they resurrected masks and lockdowns. All the things that ruined the economy then and did it again all these years later. Hmm. Now, you know, the general public, of course, wasn't aware of this and still doesn't know it. But you can't tell me that the scientists and official at NIH, at NIAID, at the CDC, that they don't know. Right. They know the truth, but they have been lying to the public and using exactly the same methods to hold people in fear. Yes. It's interesting, too, that 
one of the first people to identify the Rockefeller experimental vaccine as the cause of death was Dr. Eleanor McBean. She was 13 years old during the epidemic, and her family did not take the vaccine. They were African-American. And she wrote about how her parents went from house to house to those who were infected because you couldn't get a doctor. And they tried to help people. And she said, but interesting, none of our family ever got either the flu, well, because it wasn't the flu, but we didn't get infected from nothing. Mm -hmm. And surely, you know, they were coming from infected homes. They were fine. Now, this is interesting. She became a doctor, and she wrote several books. The first one, which is called The Poison Needle, and in that one she describes and identifies the meningitis experimental vaccine as the culprit. And she says, only those who were vaccinated died. Hmm. You know, the idea that a vaccine is a magic bullet is a marketing, you know, <laughs> mem or whatever mm -hmm. we want to call it today. Gimmick. It has no basis. It's not real. Hmm. Unfortunately, we have a not very good track record when it comes to public health campaigns. Think about the psychiatric drugs, both those that are prescribed and those that are bought on the street. There isn't really much difference in the harm that they cause. Both are addictive. Both are kind of unpredictable how a person will react because you can become violent. You can become psychotic from antidepressants. And yet, you know, so many millions of people are hooked. Right, right. And that was uh, a big catalyst and focus of your activism and the founding of Alliance for Human Research Protection I've heard you talking about the situation with your son and clozapine previously. I heard you quoted as saying, after all I had learned about not trusting authority, I trusted this doctor and pushed Amy to take the medication. And it seems like in the case of that drug, there was a fair amount of deceptive marketing and dishonesty that fueled that situation, right? Yeah, but this is the modus operandi, the way the drug industry works. All of the psychiatric drugs are very dangerous, really. And they begin by exploiting those who are ill, but not only. They use these drugs in many cases as chemical restraints, but the trouble is that these chemical restraints can do the opposite. They can incite, you know, psychotic episodes, which 
can result in violence, in suicide, and even in homicide. In several of the school shootings, it was found, but was quite hidden. It was not disclosed to the public that some of those shooters were high on these drugs. Mm -hmm. At Columbine, we know them, and others. So the other part of the question is fentanyl, which these kind of chemicals are what have made some of the wealthiest people wealthy. And government, because, as I said before, they're in partnership. There's nobody protecting the public health. Right. No accountability. And I had some notes here on one of the major scandals that you did help expose, and that's that children who are in child protective services or wards of the state have been fed a lot of these psychotropic drugs, as you say, chemical restraints. And this is a huge problem from your 2005 presentation, America's Overmedicated Children. You say Forgotten Children is an investigative report by Carol Strayhorn, the Texas comptroller who uncovered evidence that 60% of children in the Texas foster care system are being drugged with powerful psychotropic drugs most of which have not been tested in or approved for use by children. The FDA acknowledges that many of these drugs have serious adverse side effects, both physical and psychological. The comptroller said she was alarmed that in her review of a single month, November 2003, two powerful antipsychotic drugs, Resperdal and Zyprexa, made up half of the drugs prescribed to foster children in Texas, these two drugs have been approved only for adults for the treatment of psychosis, yet she found that children as young as four were receiving these powerful mind-altering drugs. Investigations across the U.S. corroborate the abusive use of psychotropic drugs, and you go on to say this is going on in Massachusetts, Tennessee. I mean, it's pretty much across the board, and it's really shocking just how many drugs, they're layered, layered like five, six, ten drugs, they're given to these kids just to get them to be basically in a numb vegetative state mm -hmm. and easy to control. That's right. They developed also a very terrible scheme, which has been duplicated all over the place, and that is drug cocktails. They mix three, four, five drugs. And what that does is when harm is caused, each company says, not my drug, it's his drug. In other words, they make sure that you cannot actually identify which drug triggered whatever the horror that happened. Now, the same thing is true with vaccines. They were initially given one at a time. So if a child showed that they were either allergic to that particular one, they wouldn't get that one again if needed boosters. But now you've got five in one. I think there's even one that's seven in one. 
So you're bombarding children with a whole multiple doses of essentially very toxic stuff that when they're harmed, you cannot identify which one of them did it. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I'm sorry, but you know. No worries. I'll cut it out. I'll call you back. I'm talking. Okay. What I'm suggesting is that this development of these multiple, you know, five-in-one drugs and vaccines is not to improve health at all. It's a marketing scheme. First of all, they charge so much higher prices for a five-in-one compared to one at, you know. It just, it's a great marketing scheme. It's like selling you a furnished house and, you know, charging you this huge fee, whether you need it or not. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they've been replicating this and expanding it is only because the public health officials, our government officials, they're giving them a pass. They're giving them permission. And if you haven't ascertained that each one of these is safe. Oh, sorry and, to interrupt you, but can you... for that child. I mean, how can you do this? But they're doing it. Right. And sorry to interrupt you, but I can hear the yeah. phone off the receiver. It's been a while since I heard a landline <laughs> sound effect like that. But... Uh, yeah, this is a landline. I can't do it. <laughs> but that, that sound is coming through if you could put it back on the receiver. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't believe it. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Really sensitive equipment. Oh, okay. So I actually learned about you and your work from my interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. when his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, came out. And he said that you've actually spent years investigating Dr. Fauci. And a lot of this would probably involve HIV, the drug AZT, and again, experimentation on children, right? Yes. I'll tell you that story. That story is the closest to Auschwitz. I mean, really. Mm. What happened actually was this reporter, Liam Sheff, he actually did the investigative reporting by going into Incarnation House in New York City, which was a Catholic charity's house for foster children. And he wrote about it, and he sent me his report. He sent it to a lot of people. But he could not get anywhere, any press, any media to pick it up. So I, you know, I read I was so horrified, and then I started to examine to see whether it was true, you know, whether whether it was based on, on evidence, because it was just horrific. And when I was satisfied that it was, I began to try to bring it out to the public. And that's what I did. I mean, I, first of all, we filed a complaint with the Federal Office of Human Research Protection. And contacted as many reporters as I could. And I do have to emphasize that at that time, 
at that time I could do that. I could, you know, give a tip to a reporter in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Science Journal or whatever. And they would pick up on it and check it out themselves and run the story. Today, that's impossible. Today, the censorship is so ironclad that they will not touch anything that doesn't come from official sources. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I also got it to John Solomon, who was at that time at the Washington Post, and then at Associated Press, and he then found five other states that had also used foster children in these horrific AIDS drug and vaccine experiments. Now, these experiments were sponsored in partnership by Anthony Fauci and the various drug companies. So Anthony Fauci was fully on board, fully aware of what kind of experimental protocols these children were going to be subjected to. Right. And as far as I understand, it involved as many as 14,000 children in seven states. Uh, most, most of the testing was on Black and Hispanic orphans. Yep. And, you know, when the story came out, they said, well, a lot of these kids had HIV, so they were going to die anyway. But the evidence suggests now that a lot of them were healthy before the drugs and vaccines were tested on them. Is that right? That was something that I found. I found a couple of articles by NYU scientists who had examined yeah, the children's data because they were, the children were, I mean, many of the top hospitals were involved. This was a big contract from government and, and industry. And they wrote that they found that some of the children were not HIV infected or anything. But you see, this is an example of a cultural disregard for segments of the human population. They regarded these children as throwaway children. Mm -hmm. The Nazis used to call those they regarded subhuman as an underclass, untermenschen, they called them. Once you do that, you see, then anything goes, because then you are no longer treating these, in this case, little children, as equal human beings. You're treating them as chattel, as something that you can do anything to. And that's what they did. Some of the older children who began to refuse to take the drugs because it was so horrific. They took them and surgically inserted a feeding tube into their stomachs so that they could not refuse. Mm, yes, but that is a great point about the dehumanization. I mean, it's very much what the settlers did. They said these Native Americans are just savages, so you don't have to feel that bad about taking everything over and wiping them out because they're not like us. And it's a psychological trick that 
gets used all the time to make people feel better about terrible atrocities on other human beings. And uh, another point about this particular scandal that I wanted to make was there's a documentary, a BBC documentary called Guinea Pig Kids that you are in. And Mm -hmm. journalist Celia Farber is also in. And there's a quote of hers where she talks about finding a mass grave of these kids who the drugs were tested on. And she said, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a very large pit with AstroTurf thrown over it, which you could actually lift up. Under it, one could see dozens of plain wooden coffins haphazardly stacked. There may have been a hundred of them. I learned that there were more than one child's body in each. Mm -hmm. And that's very dark, but it's all under uh, Fauci's watch, apparently. Yeah. Well, and you see, he has many accomplices. I think one of the telling details of this was when I read the minutes of the so-called review board that gave permission to do these experiments in New York City. And that review board was comprised of people from the hospitals that were conducting the experiments. So, I mean, conflicts of interest is something that is just so blatant, but they don't consider that. At any rate, what they said was, now, this is the point. Federal law requires that, first of all, you cannot just use foster children in experiments just like that, okay? It's supposed to be something to do with their condition and only if there's a potential to help them. Now, no matter what, if a foster child is used in experimental therapy, they have to be given an independent advocate because they don't have parents. So the independent advocate is supposed to act as a surrogate for a parent. They didn't do that. And the minutes showed that they, and these are doctors, right? They agreed that one advocate would be enough for the whole bunch. This is treating the children like a herd of animals. Mm -hmm. The complaint that we filed, the Federal Office of Human Research Protection, after they investigated, they validated what we said. The children did not have an advocate as is required by federal law. Now, that film that you mentioned, Guinea Pig Kids, It was a BBC-sponsored film, Mm -hmm. and BBC posted it for something like four days, and then they pulled it. The long tentacles of the research community here in the United States had them pull it. I mean, the pressure was that great. So the one that is now posted on the internet is not the perfect one. It really isn't. But unfortunately, the producer didn't keep 
the copy he gave it all to ABC. So this is, it's a little bit riggedy, but it is the film, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just not the final clear image, but it's pretty much there. It's very raw and it's being seen, you know. Thousands are looking at it because this is, yeah. Nobody was held accountable. Right. It's such a sad thing, especially when it's children and it's so obvious. But so we we know about this HIV AZT scandal and we know about COVID. But what about the years in between? Are there other scandals involving Dr. Fauci and this medical cartel that stand out to you that even come close in scale that people should know about? Oh, there are lots of them. Not all of them are just Fauci. On the other hand, Fauci's involved in so much, even beyond NIAID, because really it's NIH is the overall umbrella, you know, agency over NIAID and over CDC and all that. So we also always have to remember there's also the Bill Gates Foundation, which in one way or another also has a say in things, you know, and What's interesting, too, is all these foundations. I don't think most people know, but CDC, NIH, FDA have private foundations. Those private foundations are a way to get money, industry money, corporate money. Now, this is, again, we have to question this. These people, these are agencies that are supposed to be oversight on behalf of the public. They're supposed to oversee the industry that they are in partnership with. And it's a money funneling method. That's what foundations have really become. They are a way for corporations to funnel money and not to have to pay taxes on them. So while they're avoiding taxes on their own earnings, they're buying influence with the agency that is supposed to be the policeman. This all, you know, is part of, on the heels of the buy dole law. Mm -hmm. But you see, there was warning against all this. And you know, it was in 1961, when Dwight Eisenhower hit his last speech as President of the United States, warned us about the undue influence of the military industrial complex. Right. What happened since then, today, that industrial complex has been expanded to include the biopharmaceutical and technology industries. Mm -hmm. It's far more expansive and powerful. Right. And there was a real military flavor to COVID with Operation Warp Speed and military involvement. And it's like, well, isn't this medicine? Why are they involved at all? Exactly. That's what people should ask. Why is the military, why is the CIA involved in public health? Clearly, 
public health is just a facade for something else. Mm -hmm. Now, these foundations, as I explained, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that are funneled through them. And when you look at the roster of those who belong to them, you'll see all the who's who. And, they're, and, and of course, they're crisscross in all three foundations. Yeah, these were all you know, formed in 1990, was the NIH Foundation, then it was followed by the CDC Foundation in 1995, and in 2007, the FDA formed the foundation as well. Hmm. Yeah. Man, and I also find it interesting that now some people who have gotten the jabs were testing positive for HIV, and we have this big previous scandal with HIV and some of the same players involved, it just seems odd that uh, that would happen. It's like maybe the technology, the mechanisms, the things that they're working on are not all that different now than they were then because we have this this indication that you can test positive for HIV now after these jabs, apparently. Well, that should really worry people because that means that the immune system is being suppressed and it opens the gate for, yeah, for autoimmune diseases, which is what AIDS is. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be all kinds of consequences, obviously myocarditis and people dropping dead in the middle of athletic competitions and just a whole range of things. But there's a quote from a speech that you gave in Brussels is supposed to be on the big stage and we can talk about why it wasn't. But you say we are at a catastrophic junction in human history. Today's predators have unleashed an injectable bioweapon designed to deliver a poisonous spike protein and stealth surveillance technology into the body. Well, I agree with you on that, but to call the shot an injectable bioweapon to other people, it sounds a little extreme because so many people we know have gotten two or even three shots and they don't seem to have any consequences yet. So they hear people like you and I talking and using those terms and they get turned off because it doesn't match the reality that they see. Do you suspect that eventually it will make more sense? Unfortunately, eventually it will. One of the things that scientists have discovered is that the injections are not all the same. They do not all contain the exact same ingredients. Hmm. Now, let's really take that in. Remember, we, the public, don't know what's in those injections. But it turns out that they are testing different formulations, different doses. Mm -hmm. And that's beyond just different brands. I mean, different shipments seem to go to different places. Right. And remember also, there are many manufacturing places. So each one may also have variants. This is not a carefully screened and carefully manufactured, you know, for quality assurance, FDA hasn't even, it has given itself permission not to have to inspect. 
they're not inspecting the places where the laboratories, where these shots are being put together Mm -hmm. and shipped. So have you seen any correlations between certain lots being sent to certain places? Like, was this kind of haphazardly randomized? Or can we say that it looks like more dangerous shots were sent to like lower income communities or certain regions? Is any of that shaken out yet? Well, some have been looking at it. And, you know, these kind of allegations would have to be really, really careful to be on solid ground. Yes. Because the question is partly, if there are variants, are they purposely formulated differently so that they can test out which formulation, you know, causes harm after two weeks, after a month, after a year. All this is still in flux because these are experimental. Let's remember, Mm -hmm. they've been rolled out and continue to be given. They remain experimental. And from the get-go, everything that we were told turned out to be not true. It was supposed to be 95% effective. By now, they're admitting, including Fauci, oh, no, they don't really prevent infection. Oh, no, they don't prevent transmission of infection. No, no, they don't prevent hospitalization. And now they don't prevent death. Right, right. And yet we still see at concert venues or some restaurants here in California to attend, you need to be fully vaccinated or have a negative COVID test. And it's like, well, why am I being discriminated against? Why are my requirements different when we just established the vaccine doesn't really do much, doesn't do anything that it's supposed to do? So why don't we all need a negative test? Why do they have a privileged class because they obeyed the rules and I don't? Well, there. I mean, this is just it. I think people need to really, really come to terms with the fact that the reason that this is being done is because people are being obedient. The minute everyone says no, it's over. They can't force everyone. You see, they can force minority of people. They can harass a minority of people. They can't harass everybody. Mm -hmm. And so it behooves people to, you know, take off their masks and say, no more jabs. You don't, you know, if it doesn't help, then why should I expose myself? Right. People need to take, to exercise both their right as free human beings and their responsibility as adults. It's time parents protect their children and not deliver them. I agree with you, but sadly, on a mass scale, it seems like we're going the other way, where all our governments are trying to sign on to give the WHO even more authority over all policy on a global scale. Well, if that were to happen, that would be the end of America, the end of each nation. As a matter of fact, they want to eliminate nations. They want to eliminate, of course, all constitutions and have one world government with one group of global oligarchs making all decisions for the entire human species on the globe. Right. That's all. I mean, look, these 
are delusions of grandeur, similar to the way the Nazis felt. They also had delusions. The Nazis weren't going to stop by exterminating the Jews. That was phase one. They had plans for all the other ethnic groups until only the Aryans would be the rulers, the master race. We should remember that. And what's happening now is, as some of us are looking at it, is an attempt to have the Fourth Reich. Mm -hmm. And But it'll be different. No, there won't be gas chambers. Now it'll be all technologically done. Right, right. And I've heard you talk about actually, you know, one of the real goals is digital IDs, vaccine passports, and the control of every individual, even beyond just the shots and the medical side of it. There is a real control element here. And there's a bit of a parallel with IBM's role in World War II, isn't there? Exactly. That's right. IBM provided Hitler with the technology that was essential for him to be able to identify every Jew first in Germany and then in all of occupied Europe, and then to round them up, to strip them of their property, to revoke their passports, to ship them off. IBM scheduled the trains so that there would be no delay. And that's how the industrialized genocide was accomplished with IBM and the tattoos that some people had on their arms were IBM identification numbers. Today, IBM is in the forefront with a few other companies that are doing the green passport, so-called, and all the digital, much more sophisticated technology. They can do chips, which can be injected with the injection. They could be just like that. Mm -hmm. There was just a presentation at the World Economic Forum in Davos where you know, they are saying the quiet parts right out loud and nothing's happening. But one of the speeches, mm -hmm. the guy said, hey, we now have chips that we can put inside pharmaceutical pills. And the quote was, imagine the compliance. And my thought was, well, if I'm sick and I'm prescribed a medication, why are you all that worried about compliance? Shouldn't it be self-evident that I should be taking the medication to solve the issue that I came to get a prescription for? Why do I need you watching over me? Like, it should be pretty clear. So I, it was just kind of a creepy comment, and people still doubt this is a reality, and yet they're on the stage giving the presentations. Mm -hmm. Well, look, the reason that they want compliance, and this began in psychiatry, because so many of the drugs have such terrible effects in various parts of the body and mind, Many stop complying, of course. They realize that it's the drug that's causing the trouble, so they stop doing it. Well, they don't want that, you see. If somebody stops complying, then the cash register is quiet. Can't have that. Hmm. You've got to have a continuous stream of 
gold. <laughs> you see, it's profits. But now we're talking profit and totalitarian control. They have played controlling parts with psychiatric patients and with prisoners, of course. But now they want to do it with the entire global population. It's true. It's true. And, you know, I read that quote from the speech you prepared for the Brussels event, but talk to people about what happened at that event, because it didn't go off the way it was supposed to. Right. We had earlier a press conference. And it was pretty well attended and it was shown, was aired. And when they got wind of the content of what we were going to be talking about, the police came and just broke up the demonstration before the speakers could begin to talk. It was a ruse as if there was some, nothing was going on. It was perfectly peaceful. But they broke it up. They absolutely were not going to let us speak. And some of the police even said, oh, you can have the singers, because they were also, they had planned to have some entertainment. Oh, the singers, that's okay, but no talking, no speeches. Isn't it interesting how words have become regarded as if they were <laughs> weapons? Right. I guess they don't want to take the chance of the truth being articulated and some people being convinced. It threatens their single narrative, which is vaccines are safe and effective and we must listen to the authorities and science speaks. This whole notion, this whole idea of making science into some kind of a religion is exactly opposite of what science is about. Right. Real science is about having opposite ideas, scientists arguing their own view, coming to some kind of terms together, and then a few years later, it starts all over again because new information overthrows the old science. Science is something that is in flux. New information overturns old suppositions, old, you know, beliefs. That's how it works. But on the other hand, we should remember, you know, I mean, some scientists have <laughs> been burned at the stake They're saying that the world is not flat. Right, right. So, truth in, in a milieu, you know, of a big lie is very threatening. Yes, it's true. And that should be very telling about that situation that just giving some speeches is such a threat and needs to be shut down. Yeah. Uh, people who still have rose-colored glasses on with this whole COVID thing really should reflect on why that would be. 
you know, it's not Big Daddy protecting us from misinformation, as they so often say. It's like, well, why can't we all just talk and let the best ideas win? Why can't that be the situation? Right. And some people can feel this way and other people can feel the other way. What's wrong with that? But what I find is that those who have been fully kind of taken in, primarily because of fear, they are afraid to have a conversation. They don't want to have a conversation. They're afraid that their belief in what they're told to believe will be shaken, and they're afraid to deal with that. Because otherwise, why wouldn't they want to argue? Right. I haven't seen Fauci debate anybody. I've heard Bobby Kennedy call for many debates, and no one seems to step up. Right. That's right. Bobby Kennedy did, and so did Steve Kirsch. He's offering a million dollars. Come debate me, anybody. Hmm. They won't do it because they don't have the support for their claims, and they know it. Why wouldn't they accept a million dollars? <laughs> Plus win the debate, right? I mean, if they thought they had a chance. Exactly. And, you know, there are people who say, I hear what you're saying, but what's the alternative? Because we have a lot of diseases out there. We have to figure out what works. There's going to be some casualties on the road to finding cures for everything. And I think that's people still thinking that there's altruistic goals in mind here. But what is a better way for us to, to do medicine without some trial and uh, and trying to figure out what works? Personalized medicine, wherein the doctor swears to do no harm to the individual as required by the Hippocratic Oath. Also, the doctor would swear to maintain confidentiality of the individual patient. And I want to just end with one thought about this. The Greeks were very smart. They had those who wanted to enter medical school. Before they were accepted to medical school, they had to swear the Hippocratic Oath because they understood that medicine, the secrets of medicine, could be used both for good and for ill. And that's why they wanted the would-be doctors. They didn't teach them the secrets first. They had them first swear that they will not use what they learn to harm. Yeah. If we had that and we had the, you know, before the Rockefeller kind of controlled medicine from 1910, before that, it was mostly all sorts of different healing methods. Right. And those healing methods always try to minimize the number of doses of interventions. The way it works now is it's radical. 
<laughs> right away, you want to use the biggest dose because that brings in the more money. You can charge more money. So therefore, the two are interconnected. Medicine should not be the way to riches. And the old-fashioned doctors did not expect to become billionaires. Hmm. No, they <laughs> did it because this was their calling. Right. And they were more altruistic. I mean, think about the doctors who used to go to people's home when person was sick. Now they're doing it by Zoom. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but taking the human aspect out of medicine makes medicine more vulnerable, more susceptible to being used as a weapon. I agree. Helping people should be its own reward, and we have a lot to relearn about suppressed alternative medicines over the last century. Right. Wow. Well, your work is so impressive. You've covered so much, and you've had several experiences no one should have to go through, and you're a great example of the massive impact a motivated person can make. Are there any links or calls to action you want to leave people with before I let you go? Well, definitely. We're sort of in suspended animation, kind of. Our website is being kind of reconstituted a bit, so it's a bit old. But there will be plenty of things there soon to connect to. And you certainly gave them, you know, CHD is a good one to go to because they're very au courant, very current. It's important. I think that if people connect to those groups that are fighting back, they're going to feel much better, you know, being on board to free our society. I mean, really, especially the United States was formed by people who really, really understood the value of freedom. Yeah. And we really would be letting them totally down by giving in and obeying what are now really, really evil people. The entire government and the corporate, it's very sad, but it's been overrun with evil, evil people. And the trouble is that most ordinary people cannot fathom evil. They really can't because they're not evil. But these people really want to get rid of most of the population. And this is very hard for people to swallow. But they're on record. Depopulation is it. I just saw something from World Economic Forum where they're telling the elderly essentially to commit suicide so that their children can grow up. Because there are too many people. There are too many people. They've been saying that since the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Nature will take care of population. It, it always does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't we... need to become Nazis. <laughs> we don't need to do genocide in order to protect the population. No. Well said. Cheers to that. Oh, well, it has really been an honor and a pleasure to get to talk to you. You're just full of knowledge, and uh, I hope people learn some stuff today. Take care and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you very much. All right, heavy episode, but definitely an important one. I really wanted to follow up on some of the names that Robert F. Kennedy dropped in our interview or referenced in his book, and Vera was the only one that got back to me. The work she's done through the organization she started, the Alliance for Human Research Protection, has definitely had an impact on the biomedical machine. 
and shows us that a lot of this disregard for human life is not new. It never went away, and it happens quite consistently. She's exposed a lot of dark stuff they would prefer stay hidden, and has even stopped chemical testing on children from occurring, so... To me, that makes her a great person to highlight around here. I get a lot of emails from people asking, this is all so terrible, but what can I do? Well, I think we have enough people starting up other podcasts, but you can pick a cause that you care most about, give it a name, make it a website, and start aligning yourself with other passionate advocates. Research the topic as deeply as you can and keep at it. It's never been easier to spread the word about something like an activist organization because you just do the podcast rounds and ask people to support the mission and make people aware of your successes and effectiveness in whatever area you decide to tackle. Imagine of all the people listening, if only 10 started something like Vera started, what kind of good that could do over the next two or three decades. But given the fact that Vera has been following the NIH and Fauci for so long, it had to be surreal to see him out as the front man for COVID because you just know this guy is no good. And we did tie in a lot here. You know, my goal wasn't let's go over COVID 101, but she does offer an interesting and unique and important perspective as a critic of this whole COVID operation. And she occupies a very key space in being able to make some of the criticisms she makes, because think about the kind of people who bought it hook, line, and sinker, and then who wants to tell someone with Vera's childhood experiences that she's wrong? You see what I'm saying? It makes for an interesting dynamic. And she can probably be particularly effective because of those unique circumstances. But we got into not just the biomedical industrial complex, but also child protective services and what happens to kids who are in the custody of the state. And also made pretty clear that the eugenics philosophy is alive and well at the higher levels. It still blows my mind that Celia Farber actually found this mass grave. I mean, that's so crazy. And again, so many people out there could have that kind of impact, but to find something, you have to be looking. We know the big machine circles the wagons and protects itself, so if there aren't citizen journalists, then there really just aren't any. (laughs) But I said in the interview, I couldn't remember where it was. It was at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York, by the way. But all this biomedical research and virus tinkering and genetic tinkering, I really worry. This is the kind of stuff that could break reality itself, and these arrogant psychopaths probably don't care if they do. So there has to be some kind of public outcry, or it'll never end. I mean, wherever you land on what COVID is, in the choppy wake of all this stuff, what have the consequences been? To make trillions of dollars and for Fauci to be Time's person of the year? The lab leak idea is all but accepted at this point, yet I don't see any support for regulation of this runaway train. One of the problems is that they have the air of expertise that no one is willing to put restrictions on because the appeal to authority says, well, hey, you don't understand what we're doing and how dangerous this regulation could be. We need full autonomy to stay ahead of the next pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's just the game they play. 
Regardless, we are lucky to have Vera looking out for the kids when so few are. As you might guess, the second hour of the Plus show, it took us deeper. We got into the stealth surveillance technology in the vaccine, the seduction of technology. I asked the question that, well, given the history, why was Israel so on board with the jabs? We compared the first and third world responses to COVID. We talked about a more honest context for the Holocaust and a first-hander's perspective. The profiteers of the Nazi apparatus, the Bushes, the Schwabs, and the real continuum. How her group was able to stop a program to test pesticides on children. Genetics being eugenics. And the connection between human growth hormone, mad cow, and COVID. As well as a positive note about a better way to medicine. The mad cow association, though, is definitely scary. And this has been an effect of gene research in the past, sometimes taking 30 years to manifest, and it's now associated with a jab effect. This is not good. And it seems weird to pitch THC Plus now, but hey, this is what we do. The HiresideChats.com seven-day free trial. Check it out. And look, I know we have a lot of listeners out there who did get the shots, and when we have a guest who uses a word like bioweapon, I make sure to ask, is that fair to say when so many people did take it and don't have these negative side effects, it could be a bad and dangerous product without being a bioweapon. I personally think it is, but it's really not about what I think personally. And to make the best case, sometimes you should ask on behalf of those who are probably critical of that perspective. I always want to be accurate on things that are this important and not hyperbolic. I don't want to seem like I'm committed to a premise. If the data shows something else, but I think there's more and more data showing that this is a very dangerous jab. The data also seems to show that the system will do anything to try to hide any association with the jab, so it's probably even a lot worse than we know. All of a sudden, we're hearing stories about sudden adult death syndrome. I mean, come on, guys. I read an article this morning that tried to say this SADS was triggered by high heat and climate change, as if it's never been hot before. And we know what heat stroke is. This is not that. But of course, they're going to try to tie this to the next agenda, regardless of how sad and clunky the attempt to do it is. I certainly hope everyone does make it through this very risky experiment unscathed. You can't go back and undo what you did. But what I ask from you guys is that if something does happen, if you know people who were healthy before, that suddenly in the next couple of months or years develop some serious condition, you at least got to stay open-minded enough to be honest about any possible association. Can we meet in the middle there? Because I know someone who got the first two shots and had a seizure, but they kept the faith and they got their booster and then had two seizures. So people will really lay themselves at the altar of science and allow these people to walk them right off a cliff. And we at least need to try to be better than that, right? So ask the difficult questions in the wake of anything that doesn't seem quite right. But on another note, Vera might be the first, last, and only person I've spoken with directly who has had that World War II camp experience. I do put a lot of value in just being able to talk to someone like her. Kathy O'Brien was another one where I'm just in awe of being one degree away from such horrific experiences. 
and to know where they came from and where they got, I mean, it's just so impressive. And sunlight is the best disinfectant, so we bring the darkness to it. It's not talking about this stuff that lets it go on. But that is another episode in the bag. We've certainly been swinging hard and deep from one area to a completely unrelated area lately, and it works for me. In higher side news, I'm starting the 19-hour drive to Austin in the morning and will have to put up the fifth show of the month from a hotel somewhere. Something I'm getting more comfortable doing, actually. But as for the other meetups, if you're unable to come and have a drink with me and Gordon White in Austin, Texas this weekend, it's only been a couple of days since we put up the last episode, so I got the same two to plug. The June 22nd Milwaukee Metaphysical Society Hangout in Milwaukee, Oregon, and then June 24th, the Nashville Higher Cider Happy Hour at Tailgate Brewery. I love a good cider. I hope sometime I will be able to go to Nashville, Tennessee and join that recurring meetup. It seems to be happening quite often. And we'll get to the July events in July, but use the calendar. It is your friend. And with some of these monthly events, they seem to be growing, and little pockets of people are finding each other and sharing in the good times. You should, too. Vera, of course, was gracious enough to just plug childrenshealthdefense.org. It's a website I check regularly and subscribe to the newsletter. But her organization's website is ahrp.org. And she also has a lot of great articles and archives of the things we talked about today, as well as a newsletter of her own. Stay abreast of what's happening in these areas and let her know you appreciate what she does if you do. I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, biomedical maniacs, pharmaceutical industry psychopaths, and white coat eugenicists. Your fucking move. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class but they've overcome their shyness now we're calling them your highness and the world screams save me thc they destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect between the only people left who'd even look them Jesus
And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.